Luke chapter 11, page 1613 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy word given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Well, when you ask for something... Usually, a couple of the things that we consider in relation to the person we ask is, how much does this person care for me? And also, in what way do they care for me? How much they care for you and in what way? As a child, for me, growing up in my house, this meant that you asked dad for money and mom for food. Dad cared for me a lot. But no matter how much he cared for me, it didn't necessarily mean he was going to break out the pots and the pans. In fact, I've been living now over three decades, and I have yet to see that happen in my parents' house. My father breaking out the pots and the pans, whipping up a meal for us. It's important to know uh, how much people care for you and in what way they care for you. We think about these kinds of things in the workplace or at school. A lot of our relationships, particularly as we ask people for something. And Jesus uses these kinds of things as he's teaching us how to pray. We come here to the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke, not Matthew's version, which most of us have memorized, and uh, many churches use that in their worship, but Luke's version today, which is slightly different than Matthew's Matthew's version, and we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But it's important to see uh, this Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches to us in light of what he says afterwards and these short little 
parables. What we learn from this passage of scripture from Jesus is this. God is a good father. He is better than any earthly father. And he is always ready and willing to give us the best blessing that any of us could ever receive. Salvation and the Holy Spirit. The disciples come to Jesus after he has been praying. And one of them says, uh, Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's important for us to consider as we think about prayer. We went through the Lord's Prayer uh, very slowly as we went through our catechism series in the evening a couple of months ago. It's important that we understand, as the disciple says to Jesus, teach us to pray, that prayer is not something that we can know and understand how to do naturally. It must be taught to us. It's In that way, it is like worship, and prayer is indeed a form of worship. And when we worship God, we need to approach that with great care, understanding that there are all kinds of ways that our flesh and our fallen mind uh, can, can mess things up. And so we need to understand that when God desires to teach us something, particularly about prayer, we need to pay attention. And so they request Jesus in the form of a demand to teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples. They're looking for something that would make them distinct. Jesus, give us a prayer that will help us stand out as your people, as those who look to you as Lord. So Jesus teaches them this prayer. As I mentioned before, we should not be troubled by the the minor differences between this prayer and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. If we think about it, the the phrases that are not included in the Gospel of Luke really are expansions upon similar similar ideas that we find in the Gospel of Luke. For instance, the phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is is an expansion upon the idea of God manifesting his kingdom, of God bringing all things to consummation, which he will do at the last day. And being delivered from evil is the result of being led away from temptation, expansions upon the same idea. So rather than letting it worry us that there are a couple of slight differences, rather we should consider what our God would have for us in giving us this version of the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Luke. What does God want us to learn from having this? That's what we should be concerned with. So let's look at Luke's prayer, trusting that through it God will teach us to pray and teach us the value of praying. One of the most important things we learn from this prayer by Jesus is included in the first word, Father. Jesus teaches us that we are part of a family, the family of God. This is the way that Jesus prays. We saw him pray this way in chapter 10 of Luke. Father, I thank you that you have revealed these things unto little children and hidden them from the wise and learned. This is how Jesus prays. And this is an important lesson for us. That we can pray as Jesus prays. For two reasons this is an important lesson. At least two that we'll name today. First, praying to God as Father reminds us of redemption. It reminds us of redemption. According to our sinful nature and the corruption which is ours through our ancestors, through being fallen human beings, we cannot call upon God this way in our natural state. All of us are conceived. And born into sin. And we need to be forgiven and washed and renewed. As we said today in our affirmation of faith. How does that happen? How do we get into the family of God? We are adopted by faith. But being forgiven and washed and renewed speaks of new life. It speaks of rebirth. 
doesn't it? John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. And he tells him there that the status of being a child of God, the status of calling upon God as Father, happens through what? Being born again. Being born from above by the power of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8. How is it that we call God Abba Father? It is through being reborn, being born from above. Paul probably has the Lord's Prayer in mind when he's speaking about, Rome, uh, when he's speaking about uh, calling on God as Father in Romans chapter 8 because he says we call God Abba Father. And that probably would have been the word that Jesus would have used if he taught his disciples how to pray in Aramaic. The Aramaic word for Father is Abba. So we read in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Being born again by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, is what brings us into the family of God, being able to call upon God as our Father. New life, new life that happens through the power of the Spirit, new life that brings us into the sphere of redemption and forgiveness. This is what happens to those who call out and cry out to God in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. Of course, the power of the Spirit is behind that all of the time, isn't it? Calling on God as Father reminds us of redemption. It also reminds us or teaches us about our identity. Our identity. We live in a world that doesn't really know what to do anymore about identity. People are starved for it. And they're starved for it because it's no longer a given. I read something this week and I was fascinated by it. It said this and was speaking about the difficulty people have in defining who they are in today's world, in today's culture. It says this, Who am I? An illiterate peasant in the Middle Ages was better equipped to answer that question than many people in advanced societies in this century. He may have only lived to age 30, but he spent his days among family and in towns, practicing a shared faith, and thus developed a vivid sense of who he was, who he was in light of others, who he was in light of God, who he was in light of his faith. Today, when people think about who they are, confusion rules the earth. People don't know who they are any longer. The best answers that the world seems to offer, uh, the best answers that it seems to be able to come up with, is that whatever you are, sexually or ethnically, that is who you are. Whatever you are, sexually or ethnically, that is who you are. But what does the Bible say to that, brothers and sisters? The Bible says that in Christ... By faith, you are a child of God. You belong to the greatest family who can call upon the creator of the universe as your father. You get to call him Abba. This is identity. After reminding us of these things by saying that God is our father, Jesus goes to the first petition, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This is language that people don't really use anymore. To hollow one's name or to sanctify one's name. But this is part of the language of the church. It's really important for us to know what this means. 
and to be able to use it and use it rightly. When we ask God to hallow his name, we ask that he would show himself as holy. Vindicate your name. Show us your holiness. Show the world how holy you are. Again, two primary ways, I think, in which God does this. He does it through judgment and through creating an obedient people. First, God shows his holiness through judgment. We read in Isaiah chapter 5. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God sanctifies himself in righteousness. God shows himself to be holy by judging the sinfulness and the rebelliousness of his creatures. God is a just God, and he will at one time set everything to rights. He will right every wrong. When we pray, God, hallowed be your name, we're praying for God to bring judgment. We're also praying that he would show himself to be holy in creating a purified and obedient people. We read in Ezekiel chapter 36, God gives his people a new covenant promise and saying that he is going to show how holy he is by bringing his people back into the land and by creating them anew by the power of his spirit. We read in Ezekiel 36, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So what is God going to do? His people have been rebellious. He's saying, I'm going to show the world how holy I am through you. We would assume, okay, perhaps God is going to judge them. He's going to wipe them out. No. God shows his holiness in creating an obedient people in this instance. We read verse 24 of Ezekiel 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will create new desires within you. I will put my spirit within you. I will write my law on your heart so that you desire to obey my law. So that it's different because I'm transforming you from the inside out. These new covenant promises that God gave all the way back in Ezekiel. This is what we're praying for. We're praying that God would, would vindicate the holiness of his name. That he would do so through judgment, but also through creating an obedient people. This is about the glory of God, isn't it? And the glory of God must be foundational, uh, the foundational desire of our hearts. That God would be glorified in his world. That God would be glorified in judgment and also in the fact that his people lift high his name and honor him. God has been made, God has made us to give him all things in response. And that's what we do when we sanctify God's name. As his children, we desire that we would bring no injury upon the name of God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. We know from our time in Luke that the kingdom of God is central, not only to the gospels, but really to the whole sweep of scripture. Sometimes it's hard to pinpoint what the kingdom means. We've been defining it very simply as new creation. The kingdom of God is new creation. The reign of God in and through new creation. What do we pray for when we pray, your kingdom come? Two things, again, two things. 
First, we're praying for the consummation of all things. The consummation of all things. That God would bring all the heavenly realities that he promises in his word, all the eternal life blessings that he promises all throughout his word, that he would bring those to realization. That he would hasten the day of consummation. But we're also praying for the evangelization of the world, aren't we? We are praying that as the the, the kingdom of God is proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that more and more people would experience that life-changing forgiveness, the transforming power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, that they would be brought into the people of God to honor His name. For all of us, brothers and sisters, have to recognize that we can only speak well of our God, that we can only honor God as we ought to because of Him, because of the transforming power of the gospel. All of us needed to be cleansed and washed and renewed. So there's this... Uh, this slower advance of the kingdom through the world in evangelizing the world. But then there is this final climactic beginning of the, the, the final stage of the kingdom of God. Consummation, evangelization. Jesus spoke clearly of this twofold aspect of the kingdom. The Pharisees came, come up to him in Luke chapter 17. And they ask him about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says this, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus proclaims this kingdom. It is there. It has begun. The kingdom of God is in the midst of us. How? How is it in the midst of us? Through the power of the Spirit. Through creating the new life in us, in and through faith. That same new life that we will experience in its fullness in eternity. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. A slow advance. But Jesus also talks about the other aspect of the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 17. He turns to his disciples and he says this right afterwards. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side uh, to the other so will the Son of Man be in his day. What Jesus is saying is, when the, when the kingdom of God comes in its, in its fullness, everyone will know. No one will wonder. And yet mysteriously at the present time, Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Why? Because new creation life is present in and through the gospel, in and through faith in Christ, in and through the power of the Spirit. We pray that God's kingdom would come in those two ways, consummation and evangelization. Give us each day our our daily bread. Now that we have prayed for the glory of God, the advancement of his kingdom, the hallowing of his name, all of these things, then we ask God for regular sustenance. Two things I think we can focus on in this petition. Two things, contentment and humility. When we recognize that God gives us our daily bread, we are humbled and we are reminded that it's not by how good we are, how smart we are, how hard we work. Nothing can come to us except that it comes from the hand of our sovereign God. And that also teaches us, brothers and sisters, to be content with what God gives to us and humble in regards to what comes into our possession. Give us day by day, there's this daily dependence upon God, that the things he gives to us come from his good hand, and that we need to continue to rely 
upon him. It's also interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the, the only other place we find this close proximity to give and bread is when Jesus gives bread to his disciples at the Last Supper. And there I think we're reminded, even in the Lord's Prayer, that God not only sustains us physically, he sustains us spiritually. Our spiritual nourishment comes from God. And so when we pray, give us each day our daily bread. We're, we're praying that God would uphold us physically and spiritually. Forgive our sins, we pray, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. In, in this we're reminded, aren't we? We see from Jesus' pattern that this is meant to be at least a daily pattern of prayer, if not a daily prayer. And I think it's very healthy for Christians to say the Lord's Prayer every day, not just to recite it, but to pray it. There's no magic in these words, but this is what Jesus teaches us. So I think it's a healthy thing to pray this prayer each and every day. But I also think it's healthy to use it as a pattern of prayer. We see here Jesus uh, teaches us to pray, give us day by day our daily bread. So this is to be a daily kind of prayer. And so we see in the next petition, forgiveness and repentance, that this is to be an ongoing part in the life of a Christian. If we say we have no sin, 1 John says, we deceive ourselves. It's calling us to have a gospel-centered worldview, to always view everything in light of the fact that we are forgiven and the magnitude of the forgiveness that God has shown to us. And what then becomes the call upon us as we have this gospel-shaped, gospel-centered worldview? That we are to then not hoard the forgiveness that God gives to us so generously, but we are to show forth that forgiveness, to be gracious and generous and abundance with the amount of forgiveness that we show. The way that this petition reads, it almost sounds like we earn our forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, for we forgive those who sin against us. That's, of course, that would fly in the face of hundreds of passages of Scripture. We know that we're forgiven by the mercy of God, that it's God's mercy that meets us and not ourselves who earn it. Rather, what Luke is teaching us here is that since forgiveness is free and God gives it with such abundance, it would be unnatural for us to keep that to ourselves and not show forth that forgiveness. We are transformed to be faithful disciples through the gospel and through the forgiveness that we experience in our great God. Finally, lead us not into temptation. As we walked through this slowly, as we went through the catechism, we saw that God does not tempt us, as we see in James chapter 1. What we're asking here in this petition is that, uh, that we, would, we would have God's help in not allowing the testing and the trials that come into our life from the sovereign hand of God, that we, in our sinfulness and in our flesh, would not turn those into temptations. That through the power and the grace and the help of God, we would be able to withstand temptation. That we would not be drawn away from our love to him. That we would be able to withstand in the day of trial. And so, with all of these things, then let us consider briefly these parables that Jesus gives immediately after teaching us to pray in these ways. Again, God is a good father, much better than any earthly father. He shows us this with these, with these short parables, Jesus does. The first illustration is about two neighbors and a visitor. A visitor comes to one of the neighbors in perhaps the middle of the night, it seems like, and the man takes him in, but upon letting him in, he realizes that he does not have enough food to feed him. 
So, this is a desperate situation. We've talked about hospitality in the first century world. This is somewhat of a desperate situation. So he goes to his neighbor's house to ask for three loaves of bread. Even though it's late, he knows he must do this. He must ask so that his visitor can eat. But the neighbor says no. Back then, most people lived in one-room houses. And so the excuse he gives, the door is locked, the children are asleep. I don't want to climb over all of my kids to open the door. And I'll wake them up as a parent of young children. I resonate with this here. The constant worrying about one of the girls waking up in the middle of the night. Constantly. Just waiting for it, right? So I resonate with him here. But uh, Jesus says, in, under all normal circumstances, this would never happen. Because even, even if the neighbor does not give the, the three loaves of bread out of friendship, he will give the three loaves of bread out of pity. There are aspects of honor and shame here that we need to know from the first century world. Honor and shame, which is sort of the dominant uh, cultural factor in those days. The word we need to notice is boldness there in verse 8. It's probably more accurately translated shamelessness. It's because uh, the, the neighbor knows that this man has been shameless in asking for the three loaves of bread. So in some ways, he's had to take a hit to his honor to go and knock on his neighbor's door in the middle of the night. And no normal person would send his neighbor back without the bread uh, in order to absorb even more shame, refusing something so simple as bread. Under normal circumstances, Jesus says this would never happen. So it's a sense of pity here for the neighbor who is asking for the three loaves of bread. This is not a positive picture. This is a negative one. The other picture is found in verses 11 through 12. Certainly there may be a small number of exceptions to this rule, but of course exceptions don't change the rule. Even fathers who are not good people tend to treat their children in caring ways, providing for them in some way. A son who would have asked for a fish or an egg back then is not asking for some kind of delicacy, but something that is part of normal everyday life. The fish and eggs, these would not be considered delicacies back in that world. So even someone who may be a bad person, not a very caring person or father, will he give his son a snake or a scorpion in response to this request? These are things which are poisonous, right? Deadly. Snakes and scorpions. The son is asked for something very basic, A sandwich or a bowl of cereal. Almost no one would be filled with so much malice as to respond by trying to kill him in response, giving him a snake or a scorpion. What is Jesus trying to teach us with these two parables and in light of what he has taught us about prayer? Is he saying that we are like the annoying neighbor and God is like the exasperated man who is filled with pity to give him the three loaves? You know, fine, just take it. Fine, have the loaves. Is an evil father the way we are supposed to think about God? No, of course not. Luke says just the opposite, in fact. What this is called is an argument from the lesser to the greater. In both instances, in both of these pictures, the, one, the person who asks gets what they ask for. Their request is granted. And the ones who are giving are not impressive at all in terms of their character or virtue, and yet they get what they request. And so how much more then? This is what Jesus is saying. How much more? 
Will God listen to his children when he commands them to ask things of him? God has commanded us. Pray this way. Pray this way. Ask. So how much more will God listen to his children? He is not annoyed out of our asking. God does not grant requests out of some cultural obligation as we see here. He is certainly not evil in the slightest. So if the request is granted in these two situations, will not God grant our requests? But this brings us to considering, finally, uh, verse 9 and 10. And what they mean particularly in light of this prayer. And why it's important to understand the Lord's Prayer in the shadow of these parables that Jesus gives later on in verses 5 through 12. We read in verses 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now if we consider this Uh, this passage, a short passage on its own, don't we kind of end up saying, how is it that Jesus is not teaching here that we just ask God for anything and we get what we ask for? Some kind of genie-in-a-bottle view of God. Well, there are two things that I like to point out that teach against this way of thinking. The first is considering the prayer we have just been taught. Consider the prayer in general. And consider how that prayer completely transforms our mindset and our worldview. We should ask ourselves always when we are praying, are we praying in line with how Jesus taught us? How has Jesus taught us to pray, to adore him, to ask him to vindicate his holiness, to beg him for the forgiveness of our sins, to ask him to supply us with the things that we actually need? physical needs, and spiritual needs. See, it would be silly. It would be rebellious. It would be arrogant to take this promise in verses 9 through 10 and then go on praying in a way that is completely unlike the way that Jesus teaches us to pray. God, grant all my wishes. Give me the house. Give me the car. It's completely unlike the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. We think about asking and seeking and knocking. Asking is rather general, general, but let's think about seeking and knocking. Knocking has to do with a door, a door that leads somewhere. And if we think, think about this in light of all of Jesus' teaching, Jesus says what? I am the door. And we go through him to get to what? To get to the, the blessings of eternal life. Jesus says in John 10, when he says, I am the door, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. Ask yourself, what is the abundant life that Jesus promises to us? Is it the same abundant life that is presented to us in much of the world? Or is it deeper? Is it more meaningful? Ask yourself if you're treasuring the abundant life of Jesus. If we think about seeking, Seeking, if we search scripture, one of the main things that we see is when we see this idea of seeking is connected to seeking the Lord, seeking specifically the Lord. We read in Psalm 40, verse 16, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. So ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking his face? Are you seeing God as the highest good of your life? That is what Jesus teaches to us in the prayer. 
It transforms our mindset and our worldview. If we're praying in, in light of what Jesus teaches us to pray, then what we ask for will be completely transformed as well. What we desire, what we seek, will be completely transformed as well. The second thing that shows us Jesus isn't giving us some sort of genie-in-a-bottle view of God and of prayer is what he explicitly says we receive. What does he say at the end of the passage? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what we receive and what God stands ready to give. This returns us from this idea of arguing from the lesser to the greater. If it's true that a cranky neighbor or a bad father will give these basic things of life, we can then conclude that a sovereign and a loving God will give greater gifts, even the greatest of gifts, to those who ask him. The Holy Spirit, of course, is this presence of new creation, of redemption, of eternal life here and now. He is the one who dwells in his people as the present reality of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit helps us to withstand all of the wiles of the devil. The Holy Spirit takes God's word and plants it deep into our hearts. It is the Holy Spirit that we need in order that we might honor God the way that we are called to do. This is the profound blessing that we have uh, that Jesus is teaching to us. And consider this, brothers and sisters, anyone who ever asks in faith to receive the great blessings of salvation, to receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit, God does not say no. Never. To anyone who asks in faith to receive the greatest blessing that any of us could ever receive. If God were in heaven, and if he freely granted a million dollars every time he was asked, people would never stop praying. And yet their God stands in heaven, ready to give a blessing that is infinitely greater than that. Freely. To all who ask in faith, and yet so many find themselves too busy to ask, too doubtful to ask. And so the question we must ask is, are we treasuring salvation? Are we treasuring the gift of the Holy Spirit the way that Jesus teaches us to do here? God freely grants salvation to all who come to him in faith and repentance. And he also stands ready to give his children who already know him. This is important. He stands ready to give us a greater measure of grace so that we might walk in step with the Spirit. Are we treasuring? Are we treasuring the Spirit the way that Jesus teaches us to here? Are we treasuring salvation? This is the greatest treasure anyone could receive, not worldly wealth. Now it must be said as we close... That many people are sad, not because they have not been given worldly riches, rich beyond their wildest dreams. That's not why they're sad or why they struggle with this. But because God has not healed them of some kind of affliction or because life has been a myriad of challenges and difficulties and they just don't seem to be able to experience or live in persistent joy of the Lord. And to those who feel that way, we must empathize with them. We must try to bear their burdens along with them. But how much more for those? And if that's you, how much more? How much more must you cling to this promise that Jesus gives, that above all the trials and the sufferings of life, that this God freely grants salvation to those who believe? And so, may we treasure so great a salvation. May we treasure the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which God grants to us freely as we pray, 
God gives us a greater measure of grace to walk in step with the Spirit. Through this, may we ask and seek and knock, remembering what Jesus has taught us, knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us and cares for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, hide these words in our hearts. Plant them deeply. May they take root and have effect in our lives. All for your glory. In Christ, your Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen. We close our service this morning by singing the song on the other side of our inserts. There is a Redeemer. Let's stand together, sing all three verses.